I believe that veterans are the key to unlocking America's next golden age. By empowering and influencing one million veterans to transition well and become leaders in their communities, we can unlock our country's destiny and continue to change the world. My name is Bernard Bergen. George Rice III believes that everyone has been created with at least one gift, and that gift alone makes us great. He believes that by cultivating and maximizing our gifts, we're able to overcome adversity and become champions in countless fields of human endeavor. As the Associate Director of Multicultural Student Services Center at the George Washington University and CEO of Triple Threat Enterprises, LLC, Coach Rice is a triple threat whose message is fueled by his dedication, commitment, and passion for coaching, training, mentoring, and empowering young people to surpass their own expectations. With more than 15 years of experience as a basketball coach, educator, and mentor, Coach Rice is intense in his commitment, interactive in his delivery, and ready to put you in the game. Thanks for being on the show, Coach Rice. Good morning, Bernard. Thank you for having me, sir. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Coach, and just I'm thankful and grateful that we can kind of go deep and really touch on that, I guess, just that mindset of those who know that they have something in them that could pull from others, things that they might not see. And I think coaches, and if, if people truly are honest, have been like the most pivotal shift in most people's life, having the right coach at the right moment in life, just keeping you on the right path or having you see something in yourself that at times, just because of life, you were overlooking. What ultimately showcased to you that you had that in you to be a coach and to see in others that diamond that they might be overlooking? You know, when I first started working with young people when I was living in Atlanta, I was tutoring young men who were in a residential program. It was basically a way for them to keep themselves from getting placed into the system. And mm -hmm. so I started as a math tutor. And what ultimately happened was that's really when I realized I, I had a gift for working with young people and for teaching. And so wow. as I would coach them, not just through the challenges in math, um, we just started talking about life. And, and at 21, in my infinite wisdom, at 21, I was able to really get to a place where I could give them some insight on things that I was fortunate enough to have experienced in my short lifetime, even the privilege I had that they did not have. And, mm -hmm. and I'm saying, number one, let's start having both parents and then having both parents that actually were involved in my schooling, involved in my social life, that were basically people who gave me the structure and the discipline and even taught me critical thinking skills, even as a teenager. You know, of course, they developed between my teenage years and, you know, young adulthood. But I think I know listening to the things that my parents and grandparents would say, a lot of times the wisdom they were getting wasn't from me. It was from a generation or two before, mm -hmm. before both of us. So I believe that's where I realized I had a gift for working with young people. Now, further along, once I graduated and moved back home, I just I started teaching middle school math and science, and it just so happens I was always very analytical about the game, even as a player. And mm -hmm. so I ran into my mentor, who is now who's been a Division One basketball coach, uh, well over twenty years now, 
he says, hey, man, I think you'd be a great coach. He says, you know, you already teach. And coaching is simply a form of teaching. That, that's wow. pretty much what it is. It's just the gym is your classroom. <laughs> and Or the locker room is your classroom. Your locker room is your stage. Your gym is your classroom. And so I said, sure, I love the game. Why not try it? And mm-hmm. so literally I got bit by the bug and I'm still here. Nobody's asked me to leave. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of the short story in terms of what made me fall in love with coaching in terms of I'm a kinesthetic learner. Mm-hmm. And so clearly being able to be demonstrative in my form of, of teaching is where I, I feel most comfortable is where I excel and it's where I can be serious and funny. You get a chance to see not only the technical and fundamental knowledge I have, it's good for me to use that as a tool to teach life. I also use it as a tool to throw some comedy in there too. <laughs> and at the same time, I learn as I'm coaching, as I'm telling certain things or I'm explaining a certain concept, I realize, wow, this wasn't taught to me this way or I've never taught it this way before. So it's an opportunity for me to stay sharp. Nice, nice. Now, how did your university experiences prepare you for being in the university system and teaching, coaching and performing and leading at such a high level? I don't think during my time in university that I ever saw myself being equipped to be in that level. But I think maybe there was something that you saw early on. I love how you broke down coaching is simply teaching just a different classroom. But I think there's something else there, maybe something that you saw while you were in university, something that you saw while you were exposed to the culture of the university you attended that triggered for you that, you know, I have the responsibility to be a part of shaping and molding the next generation? That's a great question. I believe that the answer is twofold. Number one, going to Morehouse College for undergrad, there are two things that baseline, baseline that you learn how to do when you're at Morehouse. You learn how to be a public speaker in some way, shape, or form at some level. Number two, you become a servant by immersion. So there were several things that I was involved in where we were mentoring young men and women from Atlanta. So I know for a fact, being in front of an audience, (laughs) you know, it's funny. I actually went through a shy stage, like right before my teenage years, which is weird. Well, I guess it's not weird. Probably just the, the story of life. Probably most of us have been shy at some point. But I know I gained more confidence in my ability to speak and communicate publicly while I was at Morehouse, and that's kind of by design. We had an opportunity to hear some phenomenal orators, whether they were preachers, business owners, Mm -hmm. 500 guys, authors, intellect scholars. We were challenged by some of the greatest intellects of the 21st, well, the 20th and 21st century. And so I think that in and of itself was just kind of training ground. You know, I just, I literally, I fell in love with the art of, okay, how do I communicate effectively? Wow. And and organically. And so we're exposed. I think that's one thing that gives, I'm not saying no other school does this, but I'm saying at one point Morehouse was designed to train two types of folks, teachers and preachers. (laughs) So Mm. you get a lot of that in high doses. So at the very least, you know how to communicate a message. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I, I think 
being in a place where you take pride in what you say and how you say it is something that we learn and constantly, constantly are trying to teach people to take pride in and develop. So I hope that I hope that answers your question. Oh, it did. It really went deep in how much culture can help truly shape the future. And I think when many of us make a university decision, even, you know, to the young people listening to this, I think at times they don't think about how much they get to stand on the culture that preceded them and then how much they set the stage for the culture that's coming behind them. You know, and I think you just broke down for me because I could clearly see the gap, you know, like you, something equipped you. And as you talked about it, I was like, wow, I did not think about any of that when, when I was choosing you know, my university path. But I love the truth that you shared. Like if I'm being challenged to speak, if I'm being challenged by intellectuals, businessmen, philosophers, teachers, preachers, who are always showcasing that we are not just the future, but the future starts right now. It shifts how you approach not just your education, but what you do with that education. That's true. You know, Bernard, as I think about it, like seriously, one of the things that we had to eat, it's, it's required. You cannot get through Morehouse without taking a speech class. Wow. It's required. And so ironically, my final speech had to do with persuading people that teaching or education is still a highly regarded profession. Oh, and wow. I had to do a persuasive speech on getting people to really consider teaching. Which wow. Is well, well, that was a you know great segue to this question, because in your TED talk, you challenged the audience with this idea that we need to rediscover the rebellious spirit that used to exist within all of us and find power in that fearlessness. Help us unpack that idea. Wow. It's a great question. Think back to our childhood. Think of the things we did that we were supposed to do. And some of the stuff we weren't supposed to do. Yeah. Either way, I think more so the stuff that we weren't supposed to do, or I don't want to say weren't supposed to do, maybe the stuff that was risky. So I was an accident prone child, but I was always jumping off of stuff. Yes. I was just always, I was super, super, super active. I'm sure when I was a kid and they've been handing out diagnosis for ADHD, I probably would have been a candidate. No doubt. Okay, no doubt. Because I mean, and it wasn't that I couldn't sit still and be disciplined in the classroom, but I think it had more to do with the fact that I'm literally a kinesthetic learner. I, I'm more hands on. And so as we talk about being rebellious, I was rebellious. I was always the fastest. Mm. I was, in my opinion, I was always the smartest. I remember <laughs> I was always really good at math. And so we would do this thing around the world where you have to do multiplication tables. I'm the son of a math major, right? <laughs> math major in college. Um, and actually, from what I understand, my grandfather and my great grand well, my great, I never met my great grandfather on my father's side. He wasn't college educated, but they said he was phenomenal at math. He could recall math. But the story's making sense here in just a second. So it's always really good at math. And so for me, being younger, I think being rebellious was just literally being like a savage competitor in every aspect of my life. Mm. So if I'm playing, I'm trying to win. If I'm in a classroom, I'm trying to win. If I'm playing a part in a play, I'm trying to win. If I'm playing a video game, I'm trying to win. That to me was probably part of the rebellious nature of things mm. because now you see it, I see it. I guess for me, the rebellious part of me was I wasn't a nerd. 
but I was smart. Mm. I wasn't afraid to be smart. But I think the balance was I was such a good athlete. Like, oh man, he's pretty balanced. And so I think being rebellious probably started there. Oh, wow. I wasn't a hard headed child necessarily. <laughs> Let my mother tell it. I wasn't a hard headed child. I really wasn't. But here's the funny part I was never a big kid. Mm-hmm. I was always fast. I was never tall in stature. And so, you know, there were times where I was borderline bullied in certain ways. And so I had a really short temper. There were times I'm like, I never, I never bothered anybody. I was never like a jokester. Mm-hmm. Like I was never a practical joker. I, I would never start fights or anything like that. But there were times, yeah, I was picked on and, you know, I'd say, all right, man. All right. It was kind of like the Hulk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like you push me to that level. Yeah. Yeah. My eyes turn and now I'm green. So <laughs> to stay on task, I think I was rebellious in that nature, in that regard, in terms of being someone who just refused to be pushed around. I refused not to excel at something that I knew I was good at. Wow. I think I refused to be somebody who could be easily told, okay, you can't mm. do something. Mm. <laughs> I think part of my rebellious nature has to do with, I guess, as I try to pass that message on to young people, I think everything that I told you, that's part of who I was. And I think in this day and time, being who you are, regardless of what your social media says, is rebellious in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. now people have these alter ego conversations and you know, this intellectual and personal tug of war in terms of who they are versus who their social media says they are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I think the rebellious part does become, I guess it's it's another like A, B, and C. Don't be afraid to be who you are organically and admit who you're not. Mm. That's number one. Number two would be literally, don't be afraid to admit what you don't know. Right. Right. And I guess third would be, you know, understand that, everybody needs some sort of help. Mm. And even in this world of technology now, there are so many things that are at our fingertips, right? <laughs> we all still need the help of people, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not. You yeah. know, even though a lot of people, especially now this generation is learning to be more individualistic because everything is right at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. I think what's rebellious now is being in a place where we understand that true value is in building relationships with people, wow. asking help from people, gaining skill sets from people, including you know communication and the whole nine. And so I love Warren Buffett's story because he doesn't allow himself to use electronics to actually broker deals. He still does things organically right in person. And so I think now in this day and age, being rebellious means let's literally face-to-face Let's talk face-to-face. Let's communicate. Mm-hmm. To me, that that's part of being rebellious in this day and age. And so I guess now I, I take the lessons with me. I guess just it's kind of like transferable skills. Right. It's kind, of, it's kind of pushed back on what most people would consider to be the norm. And most people consider normal to be average. And as a kid, I never wanted to be average. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, man, man. Most people consider the norm to be average and a part of being rebellious is rejecting average. I love that. And something else you said that really resonated with me. You said, Bernard, I was not afraid to be good at what I was good at. And the second you said that I could think about all the people I saw choose to fail because they were afraid to be good at what they were good at. (laughs) And And it would be hard. Like you're like, but you know how to do this. Yeah. But 
What do you mean? Get the A. I right. thought that's the whole point. Right. Right. And, you know, honestly, growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, not a lot of us went to Catholic school. So, of course, being from my neighborhood, I guess really being rebellious for us was probably going to a Catholic school mm. um, and actually getting good grades and having a dress the part. And it was funny because girls from public schools would still come and see us. I went to an all boys public school. Oh, wow. And, and so I think that in and of itself, because my father was like, first of all, you're not going to your neighborhood school. That's not happening. <laughs> He's like, no. He says, your future there will not be so bright. If he, he says, because I know, he was like, he, he said, it's not that I know my son. He said, I just know the horror that looms there. <laughs> so he said, I don't, expose, I don't want to expose, expose you to it. And, and I was like, well, dad, what about your alma mater? He was like, oh, heck no. That's <laughs> so I know in and of itself, I guess being rebellious in that regard was really going. I'm so glad that I went not only just for understanding brotherhood and, mm. and really, really the teen concept, because, you know, there weren't a lot of African-American men that went to my school, but having older guys who were a couple of grades older than us, I'll never forget my sophomore year, there were three guys, three or four guys that got not only academic scholarships and athletic scholarships. Um, there were three guys, they all went to Miami of Ohio. I thought these dudes were super cool, but I had no idea until I started playing ball that these guys were like, they weren't just like on the honor roll. They were high honors students. These guys had 3.7s and higher. I'm seeing these dudes in the hall, I'm like, dude, wait a minute. You're this smart dude, <laughs> you know? And so literally, Bernard, I remember like it happened last night. I remember going to the fall, the winter sports banquet and they honored these guys saying, well, hey, they got athletic scholarships, but they also, they were like, but either or, they also got academic scholarships. Like mm-hmm. they piled it on in addition to their athletic scholarship. They got recruited when they found out, man, these guys are freaking smart. So literally I went home from the winter sports banquet and started studying. It's 1130 at night. Wow. To me, that was rebellious in that, man, listen, there is there is a phenomenal balance to being a student athlete at the highest level. Why not do both at the highest level? Right. Right. Man, I love that. I love that picture you painted of what does being rebellious truly look like? Because without knowing it, like even as you were sharing, I thought about all the people who would fit in. Like I'm the athlete, so I don't have to work hard in school. And you're like, you know, you could go further if you were great in school. Yeah, but don't worry about it, though. No, you should. Right. I love that you painted that picture because I think at times many of us, even in our current journeys, forget the influence we have. You know, and as a coach, mentor, and teacher, I think there's somewhere in your core where you, you're always aware that you're influencing culture and you're influencing other people. Absolutely. All right. As we continue. And I I think you showcased how you unleashed fearlessness, rebelliousness in your life. But as a coach, how do you pull that out of others? Great question. In addition to sharing my story of the past, I share with players and and students the things that I currently am working through now, things Mm -hmm. that I'm struggling with now, things that I know I need to place more emphasis on and get better at doing. And again, not to compare, you know, them facing a teacher or any particular peer pressure or anything at, you know, at home that may be affecting their daily flow. I let them know, hey, 
you all think that grownups have it, have it all figured out. <laughs> it's like, no, there are struggles we have as husbands, fathers, professionals, especially as African-American men. There are so many things that we have to push through and try to do and exceed at doing. But I guess the process in doing it, most people don't hone in on the process. So I share the things that I struggle with. Mm. with my players and I think by being that transparent and you let your guard down say man because that's the thing coaches are expected to always have the answers and I always say no coaches have all the questions Mm. and we share our challenges because again how do we literally practice what we preach to our students if we don't share what our what does our practice look like right we're at practice saying okay do these drills and What does our practice of life look like? What does that look like on a daily basis? What do you struggle with? What are you trying to stop doing (laughs) versus what are you trying to get better at? And so I've shared it with everybody in in G-Men and even, you know, I've shared it with my players. I said, me always being on that mission to be more organized, it's a constant thing. And what I do is I tell them the struggles that I've gone through, then the progress I've made and how that particular commitment to that discipline has benefited me so that it can benefit other people. Mm. So I think by sharing my shortcomings, they see me grow and I help them grow in certain aspects or facets of their lives. And as we talk about, I guess one thing I always share with them is when I got to sixth grade, I went to Catholic school. I started going to Catholic school in middle school, so sixth grade. I had a phenomenal teacher named Mrs. Augustiniak. And I remember one day she keeps me in for recess and she says, George, you are an extremely intelligent young man. She says, but this writing that you're handing in is absolutely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. She was like, these answers are correct. She says, but this writing is sloppy. She says, if you decide that this is what you want to represent you, this body of work, then I will mark every answer wrong because of the way that you've displayed it. But she says, but either way, I'm not letting you go to recess until you straighten up your writing. Not the diction in, in, of your writing, but the appearance, your, your presentation of your writing. I'm not letting you go to recess until you do it. I stayed in maybe two days and I got it together. And so now people compliment me on my, on my penmanship. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tell people, I said, thanks to Mrs. Augustinian, my sixth grade teacher. She was such a phenomenal teacher. I think if my mother could marry Mrs. could have married Mrs. Augustine, she would have married Mrs. Augustine <laughs> because she was the first person that saw talent in me, but was the first teacher to show me deference to the highest degree. Mm. And when she did that, man, I was like, "Wow, okay, Mrs. Augustine, you got it. Okay, is this good enough? Is this good enough?" She was like, "Nope, try it again." She says, "All of these answers are correct." She says, take your time, Mm. write this out. And so it was good that I had a little bit of an artistic bone in my body. I could actually write very, very neatly. And so I know for a fact that was part of a growth process for me to be in a place where I took pride in my work. And I think how you do anything is how you do everything. That was probably the, the awakening of, someone who really started taking pride yeah in whatever body of work i was presenting yeah i love that because 
I found myself in a conversation the other day and I was sharing with the gentleman, how you do anything is how you do everything. And he was late in submitting what he was submitting. And I asked him, if you're late submitting this, what else are you late showing up to? What else are you late at submitting? And I love how you broke that down because if we learn to master those small things, what we then do inadvertently is master everything. And that's what you're really sharing. And I love how you use that as sharing your flaws with your team, reminding them that coaches have all the questions and also helping them to grow by drafting behind your leadership and drafting behind your example. Exactly. I feel like it's the only way, I feel like it's the only way to be. I think sometimes I know probably when you and I were both young, we felt like, man, our parents are freaking perfect, man. They, every, how do they know the answers to everything? <laughs> and, and so I think it's, I think it's good to remind young people of not only what we struggle with, but I think it's good for, I, I know for a fact, there have been times where I've apologized to young men that are my players just for making the wrong decision in a game. And I know for a fact there was one year I, I apologized to one particular player the day after a game that we lost and we lost. It was a close game. And I apologized to him in front of everybody. As a matter of fact, I pulled the guys out of class early that day. Um, it was the last part of, of seventh period. I had talked to all the teachers. I said, hey, do you mind releasing the guys? It was a Friday. So I called him down and in front of everybody, I apologized to a kid named, we used to call him Butter. <laughs> and he, he reminded me of myself because he wasn't a big kid. He was bow-legged, but he was super, he was a phenomenal ball handler. Whatever you asked him to do, he would do it. It wasn't flashy. I looked at him several times and I wanted to sub him. And I wanted to sub him in and I didn't. And we ended up losing that game by three points to a team we had no business losing to. And I was like, and I said, Butter, I apologize to you, man. I said, I really doubted my own decision-making process and your ability to help us win as a team. I said, you know, I felt like you could have kept, I said, turnovers killed us. I said, you rarely turn the ball over. I said, I didn't need you to score. I just needed you to not turn the ball over and run the play. I said, had you been able to run three or four plays, turnover free, or even five or six, you know, with one turnover, it would have been that one turnover you would have made would have been better than the eight that we made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know for a fact, he was like, oh, man, it's cool, coach. He was so cool, man. Oh, it's cool, coach. And the nonverbal that I looked, that I received from my players, Bernard, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I really feel the moment I apologize to my players, they just gave me that much more in practice and in games. Oh, wow. I really felt like that, that, was, that was a championship run year. That I really felt like they were like, wow. And so for them, it was not only like a first for an adult to apologize. It was something else for a grown man to apologize to them. Because most of the men in their lives either just didn't have that type of humility. Right. Or they just weren't around. Too right. hard. So I think once they saw, dang, coaches demands a lot of us but he just pulled down a layer of himself to apologize to us. Oh, we gonna work hard. And we went, we rolled all the way to the championship that year, man. But it was, it was right before tournaments happened. But when I apologized to him, to me, it just went. Huh, the intangibles, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I, you know, I never thought of that. And you know, even as you say that, I can't reflect on a coach ever apologizing for a decision or indecision. And man, talk about the separation there when that's your heart, like we're a team, we're a unit. And I saw my error and my error affected the team. So let me share with the team that 
if given the another opportunity at this, I would have made a different decision. And because I didn't, here's my apology. Wow, powerful, powerful. Now, still talking about teams, why do you feel diversity and inclusion is so important right now more than ever? And two-part question, do diverse teams perform better just in what you have seen in your experience? Hmm, great questions. It's real basic. I think diversity and inclusion is important because going back to kindergarten, at some point from the time we were in kindergarten to the time we finished high school or went to college, if that was our choice, or go to the service, like serving in the uniform service like you've done, at some point, somebody has pointed out something about us that was different from somebody else. Hmm. There have been times that we thought that difference, we've been made to feel like that difference wasn't good. Hmm. So I think diversity and, and, and inclusion is important because if we all close our eyes, right, Mm-hmm. We are absolutely the same. It's only our knowledge and wisdom that separates us. That's what Janet Jackson said in Rhythm Nation, by the way. <laughs> but I think it's our knowledge and wisdom comes from our experiences. I think it's so important because you can't avoid diversity. You can't avoid being different from the person that you work next to or that you report to or that you supervise or that you mentor, or that you coach. You, you can't choose the differences no matter how much you try. Now, mm. you may be able to do, you may be able to, to choose a diverse staff, but in terms of the skill sets that they bring and the experiences they bring, their strengths and weaknesses, you can't control those. And so right. when I look right. at diversity and inclusion, I think the one thing that, is, that has allowed me to grow as a person and a professional is being able to say, okay, Here's a certain set of strengths. Here's a certain set of weaknesses. There are certain weaknesses that I want to become strengths, Mm. right? But then there are certain weaknesses I'm just like, in this particular realm, on this particular team, if I don't have to sharpen that weakness and if I don't have the desire to, somebody else can stand in the gap for that particular weakness I may have. So in terms of inclusion, I think the reason why diversity and inclusion are important is because we have to understand that we can't choose who we are in terms of how we look. <laughs> we can't choose our, our skin color, our hair texture, certain things that just, we just can't choose. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, part of inclusion or all of inclusion is being humble enough to understand that our individuality, that is our superpower. And so just like you watch any of these, for us, it was probably Super Friends or DC Comics versus the other comic, I can't remember the other group, yeah. but you choose which team you root for, you know, but when you look on those teams, every superpower team brought something to the table. So right. if it's Thor, if it's not, I know Black Panther's getting ready to come out. If there's anything that accentuates the team, allow that to be your strength. Like mm-hmm. Thor has the big, thing, has the, you know, Superman has the x-ray vision and superior strength. Flash Gordon has speed. You, you get what I mean? And so yeah, 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 yeah. I think the inclusion part has to be, People don't realize our bodies are examples of diversity and inclusion. Our DNA, you know, our bone structure, whether we're short waist or long waist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, varying levels of intellect and education, I think, if brought out more often, I think sometimes people only look at diversity and inclusion when it's convenient. Like if there's a rupture somewhere mm. in a process, if there's a rupture in the workforce, if there's a rupture somewhere, when in fact, 
the moment we feel like we don't understand something, we just need to say it. Or the moment we feel like we don't agree with something, we need to say it. And we always say in our office, it's okay to disagree, just don't be disagreeable. Mm. And to me, there there's definitely an extreme difference. And so I hope I'm answering your question. I, I think it's important because no matter what field of endeavor we aspire to work in and thrive in, no matter what community we strive to be a part of, mm-hmm. when I just look at my neighborhood now versus the neighborhood that I grew up in, I grew up in an all-Black neighborhood. But that, you know, there was a lot of diversity in it. Honestly, you talk about being rebellious, literally, because of the era that I grew up in, I can count on one hand the number of households that didn't have the fathers in them, right? Whoa. And fathers who were not. And I literally, I'm trying to think. If my memory serves me correctly, there was a family that stayed right across the street from us. Dad was a police officer. They ended up getting divorced. Dad was still around, but he was, of course, he wasn't living there anymore, at least in my particular block. Every other house had a father as the head of household mm-hmm. in there living, being providers, protectors, and producers. And so when I look at that level of diversity and varying levels of, of education, so the guy across the street was a police officer. The guy down the street was a firefighter. A couple of guys across the street, of course, growing up in Ohio, they, they worked at GM or Chrysler. Yeah, yeah. One guy, was a, he worked at the post office. So what I'm saying, there was, there was diversity there. Now moving to the neighborhood that I currently live in in Maryland, Right next to me, there is a Vietnamese uh, family. Across the way is a family from El Salvador. Two doors down is a family from Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Next door is a biracial family in terms of there's a, a white husband and a, and a Chinese wife. Mm-hmm. Um, across the way is uh, someone who is from, or a family that's from Thailand. Over this way, there's a family that's from, <laughs> from Scotland. So when you look at it, we learn the very basics of life, no matter what type of neighborhood we grew up in. We knew what was right. Okay, help out a neighbor. You can tell if they're out of town, if their newspaper started to pile up, you know, just collect them for them. But what I'm saying is, including yourself, no matter what particular circle you find yourself in, <laughs> is, a, is, that, is that part of being human again? Being humble enough to be a servant. And as you're being a servant, you're not just serving with your hands, you're serving with your ears and your heart by the way you listen. Right. I think that's the inclusive part, being humble enough to understand other people and then doing the best you can to be yourself and to be understood by those who may not understand you. Yeah. Wow. 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 I love you sharing just from your childhood to your present and just how inclusion and diversity is what really created the richness. You know, and I think Without knowing it, we kind of accept the status quo because when you talked about the rebelliousness of households staying together, fathers being in the home, it made me reflect on today and and think about the gap of what happened. And I'm not saying that every relationship was great, but I think it just became so accepted. And without knowing it, we then move into what is normal or average and we choose what is readily available, whether being a single father, single mother, and not thinking about you know, being a two-parent household and what that then means in terms of being rebellious, disruptive, uh, diverse, because it's bringing something new to a sector. And even as you talked about your current neighborhood, I love just not just the neighborliness, but that's what inclusion really is. It's not like, how do I look to separate? But we're more alike than we like to pretend we are. 
You know, and, and I love that you just took the time to break that down, because I think the more we talk about this, the more we really share about this, then people will then understand that maybe some of the weaknesses that they have on their current teams and their current businesses and some of their current ventures is simply because it's not a diverse enough environment and there's too much group think in that process. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the Rebound for Success Institute. Why did you create this? What was the passion there to create a company that truly helps train everything that you've been sharing? The concept actually came from my mentor of just the brand Rebound for Success because I looked at it, I said, and again, some people think it's, it's all about sports, but then again, I was like, but you know, sports teach a very, very, very poignant, they teach so many things. But I said, you know, if, if I go out to the basketball court, right, and I shoot and I miss, I rebound. Mm. If I shoot and I make, I have to rebound too. Mm. And if I want to have continued success, I got to go get the rebound. <laughs> Whether I'm shooting by myself or with somebody else, somebody's got to rebound. Somebody's got to help me put myself back in position to have the opportunity to succeed again. And so make or miss, you got to rebound. And a mentor of mine says, the one thing most people love about basketball is when it's up-tempo, especially the fast break. I grew up a Lakers fan, so I grew up watching, you know, Magic and those guys at Showtime. And, you know, even onto the Kobe era, most people feel like the most exciting thing about basketball is the up-tempo play. And I was like, but people don't realize it's not just defense. You got to rebound. Mm-hmm. And most people don't want to do, here's a portion of rebounding. It's the dirtiest job in the business, in the game. It's the dirtiest job. Why? You got to battle. There's really no one way to guarantee that you're going to get the ball. Oh, the, wow. The goal is the same. The strategy to get it. Yeah, yeah. And you could be tall in stature, physically strong, super agile, or elusive. All of those particular strengths can help you rebound. Mm-hmm. It just depends on, you may have to use something completely different every every possession. And so you look at Bill Russell, you know, um, yeah, he was super tall, but you know, he was very strategic in terms of, he says, well, look, man, we can't win if we don't have the ball. So in other words, you can't win if you don't have a goal. And so the reason I I started the Rebound for Success Institute is because I saw a gap with our student athletes and our leaders, and it goes beyond book knowledge. Hmm. There's There's just some gaps that they miss. And so it's really, it really has more to do with teaching, you know, it has to do with character development. It teaches resilience. It teaches how to be a more critical thinker. And I think once you become a better critical thinker, it's a product of learning how you learn. So like I said, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I didn't learn that till I was a professional. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wow, if I can identify that when I'm 14 years old, wow, imagine what I can cross off my list in terms of things that don't fit my learning style. Oh, wow. Right. And so when I realized my learning style, then I can better choose my major. I can better choose my extracurricular activity. I can better choose what particular facet of life I want to become a trailblazer or a peak performer in. And so mm-hmm. the reason, you know, the thing, one of the things I do with a couple of the schools that I, that, that my institute resides in here in the, in the area is I just do a piece on taking young people through the transition from high school to college. There's a series that I do and it just has to do with mindfulness, self-awareness, preparedness, organization, without sugarcoating it. Say, hey, look, this is going to happen. Boom, here's a challenge. What are you going to do in order to, how are you going to position yourself to rebound? And again, 
Rebounding happens in happens in every sport, whether you realize it or not. It happens in everybody's life. We all rebounded from something. Right. Right. You know, like when you came back home from the military, you had to rebound in order to say, okay, okay, boom, I'm back in, you know, society. I realized that, you know, you probably say, okay, well, look, I don't necessarily have to look over my shoulder anymore. I'm only responsible for me and my wife. You know, you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm only responsible for my particular job. There's a rebound phase there. And so I just look at it from from that perspective of, look, if you want to win, you got to rebound. So even when the other team scores, you got to rebound. Yeah, when- yeah, I love that. Man, make, make a shot, miss a shot, you have to rebound. Every part of your life, you're going to have to rebound. And I think what immediately triggered for me is, wow, that's where so many people get hung up because there's this moment, even in their success, that they don't want to rebound from that success and think about the next shot, the next play, the next opportunity. They just want to stay in that place of success. And all I saw was, you know, shooting alone on the court and you just hit the free throw and there's no one to rebound and you don't want to rebound. The ball's just kind of bouncing and rolling away from you. (laughs) (laughs) So that was brilliant. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I want to talk about your YouTube channel for a bit and something you mentioned that I really found interesting. You mentioned that technology is both a gift and a curse, especially for many of our young people. And you mentioned that so many young people think that, you know, there's an app for everything. So if they just kind of sit that app next to their homework, that, you know, it'll get done for them. And I just found that to be not only hilarious, but so practical and true because that's how many of us approach life. But do you think that this is hindering a young person's development, their ability to think critically? And if that's true, then how do we make technology more a gift than a curse? Great question. I I think it's true because the devil is in the details. Mm. And I think sometimes with apps and technology, it speeds up the process to the answer or to the results, but it doesn't really teach. Let me be careful here because they say it's it's not the artist, the practitioner. It doesn't recommend that the practitioner take it slow. Mm. Apps are meant to speed up things, which is fine. Some things we need sped up, like getting yeah. paid for, you know, yeah. people do this stuff with Starbucks. Okay. You, you know, you're on the go, you want to get it done fast, but there are certain apps that just like, uh, you know, we hear ET talk about learning Spanish there. You have to learn Spanish conversationally. And then there's an app to help you with things in times that you can't talk with somebody who, who is fluent in a different language. Yeah. But I truly believe that it's a gift in that. Yes. It allows people who are technically savvy to develop things that are going to help people because let's just be honest, there are some apps that will help people that may not necessarily be able-bodied to do certain things. Right. That's where it is a gift. It is a gift for us to be more informed because now there are apps for CNN. So no, there in that regard, it's a gift. If there's something that happened in traffic or Nowadays, if there's a terror threat somewhere, especially being in Washington, D.C., there's always some sort of level of uneasiness level, yeah. around. So it's like, OK, I can get something on my phone listening to podcasts. You know, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a gift on the go. In other words, if I don't feel like listening to my favorite you know, radio station or favorite artist, I can listen to your podcast. I can listen to whomever's podcast. So I think it's a gift there. I think where technology as a curse for for our gen for this particular generation of young people is that this is all they've ever known 
So they think that's the only solution. I think sometimes they feel like technology is a silver bullet. And I was like, I don't know anyone, maybe you do, I don't know anyone who is using app to get a job unless they were pitching a job to, to on Shark Tank, <laughs> unless they were pitching an app or an invention on Shark Tank. But but again, when you pitch for Shark Tank, you have you have you need man or woman power to do it. And I think it's a curse because it has allowed some of our young people to feel like everything can happen overnight. Mm. Or but what it does, it puts them in such a mindset where they skip processes. They skip details. Just there's a perfect example. There's a grant that that my that my office offers to students. The applications have been out at the front desk since December 8th. They were due yesterday. So of course I got 200 new brand new best friends yesterday. And so, okay, I, I, you know, I got my stuff and some people felt like they could come in 30 minutes before and fill it out. Okay, I'm done. I was like, you need an unofficial transcript. You need a copy of your award letter. You need a copy of your resume. Mm-hmm. You need, in other words, it's not just filling out the application. Oh, really? Never looked to read. It's all there on the front page. The uh, devil is in the details, right? Everything they need is right there on the front page. Now, mind you, Bernard, this application is only two pages front and back. And basically you might as well say three pages because the first page explains everything you need and everything you have to do and what you have to do if you get the grant. And so there are a lot of people who handed theirs in and it was incomplete. I said, like, I got to give it back to you. It says, this is what's required to hand it, but they just figured, let me get to it, fill it out and get the result. Wow. So filling it out is the beginning of the process. The rest of the, pro- there are, the devil is in the detail. Everybody wants to ignore the devil or try to, <laughs> you got to deal with it. You got you got to deal with him at some point. Every that's why I say the devil's in jail. You don't want to deal with the devil because that that represents something bad. Well, mm-hmm. the details are considered to be something that's bad. So I feel like technology at times, because most times it speeds up processes, it basically almost trains people or young people to forget the beauty in the details, not just the devil. So you know because everything happens so fast now. I think technology can be a curse if the practitioner. Not the art. If the practitioner has not been humble enough to go back to square one and be a beginner and say, okay, from square one, what does it look like? Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah. All I could think about was, you know, swipe left for a grant, swipe right for, for no. And I'm like, man, because, you know, what triggered for me was you're like, man, you're leaving money on the table. But look at it across everything relationships, maybe you want that strong relationship forgetting that it's going to take time. Maybe you want to build something. And again, something else that's going to take time, but you're so used to instant mix and microwave and fast that you're betraying process. And then I love seeing people complain about something they've never worked to fix, like say traffic. Like if most of us were a part of the problem solving side of the traffic, we could solve it. You know, but we are always typically looking at the Insta versus how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Be thankful, grateful for all those who did the work for us to get here. You know, high technology, high scale. But it's now our role to stop saying problem, problem, problem and go create the Netflix, you know, that solves the problem. You know, and I think even as you broke down that grant scenario, you know, you say problem, I need this grant money for X, Y, Z but we don't see ourselves as a part of the solution. And I think as you explained that, it hit me like, wow, the curse is not seeing, like you said, the process, the slow, being a part of the solution, idea, deep thought, 
maybe bouncing that thought and those ideas off of your mentors, your inner circle, developing that idea and then taking it to prototype, to market, you know, in its process and, and versus just swipe left, swipe right, you know, because one of the things that is always, I guess, strong to me, I and mean, a lot of it has to do with my military experience as well, is, is like when we disqualify ourselves and if that's the curse of too much technology, wow, wow. Agreed. So I want to touch on this. You know, I love going on your Instagram and really, you know, like looking at your sayings, your quotes. And, you know, one of my favorite coach Riceisms is, and I don't want to mess it up, so I'm going to read it. Game ready, hands ready. Where did that come from? And what does that mean to you? I had printed up some t-shirts a few years ago and I was like, game ready, hands ready means, I guess now from, from being a coach, a teacher, a parent, a, a husband, if we have the use of our hands, even if they appear to be in the, in the down position, they need to be ready. Mm. As a martial artist, they tell you, well, you know, even as a boxer, they tell you to protect yourself at all times. Not that you mean to do harm to anyone, but I always tell my guys, you know, there's only one ball on the court per possession. But if your hands aren't in a ready position, mm. you can never be a threat. Yeah. And, or I don't want to say a threat or an asset. You can never be an asset. And I feel like game ready, hands ready for me as well also means that we were all created to serve. Mm -hmm. And if our hands are ready to serve, that's 95% of the task. If we're ready to serve, that's what I mean, game ready, hands ready. So no matter what we do, for those of us that are fortunate enough to have our hands and full full use of our hands, we can't serve unless our hands are ready. Um, We can't get in the the game unless unless our hands are ready at all times to receive the gift, you know, to high five somebody, to hug somebody, all of those things we do, we serve people. We shake hands. We're giving someone the gift of our presence, attention, and, and brotherhood. Unbeknownst to us, my grandfather used to say, before people signed contracts, your handshake was your contract. Mm. Like, that is as good as a contract. In other words, I just gave you my word. So when your hands are ready, it's a contract that you sign to be a servant to whomever needs your services. I love that. I love that. Wow. Game ready, hands ready. You know, I love it. And it's a simple mantra of living a life prepared to serve, prepare for that assist, prepared to uh, score, so to speak. And I think that's another thing I think we're not teaching and advancing enough of is be prepared for those who need you. I think it's so easy to make people believe that their service doesn't count and stack to the grand scheme of things, but you know, we know it really does. And, and I know that with that coach racism that so many people will start to kind of retrain themselves to just be more prepared to serve. And I love how you broke that down. I didn't want to uh, miss this uh, question as we prepare to close. One of the things I noticed as I, you know, studied your Instagram and followed you, you know, on social was that you do your darndest to raise awareness about lupus. I'd love for you to just take some time to share with our listeners what makes this a passion for you and give those who might be going through a similar struggle a bit of your story of why you know we can all grow through uh, this go through. When I was two years old, my mother was diagnosed with lupus and she has systemic lupus. That uh, manifests itself in a myriad of ways. So from kidney failure or kidney trauma to joint pain, Mm. arthritis, 
And there, you know, for people who don't know what lupus does, it's, it's very similar to MS. As a matter of fact, when they first diagnosed her, they thought she had MS. Mm. And they were like, no, this is much more, or just as elegant, if not more complicated, because it's an autoimmune disease. So your body attacks itself. And so literally, when they diagnosed her, they gave her six months to live. Like, nope, you might want to get the kids ready. You know, this is what happens. And I remember my mother had spent so much time away from us when I was little. You know, they said at one point, I almost didn't, well, she finally came home from the hospital. I almost didn't recognize her. Like, who is this lady? You bring it into my house. But living with lupus is something that my mother has done without fail. When I was in eighth grade, my mother went back and completed her master's, you know, and, and again, we used to see our parents just get up and go to work and just produce every day, not realizing the battles of the disease itself from, you know, sometimes just body aching to, mm. and again, it went into remission for some years, but there were still some remnants of challenges with the condition. And so about a month before I graduated from undergrad, she had a flare up mm. and it was scary. They kept it from me. My sister was back at home at the time because they were just like, look, just let him finish school. Maybe, you know, maybe about two months, right around, no, it was after spring break that I finally found out. And I remember I get the news and I'm talking to my, my sister and I, I'm losing it. I'm like, wow, I'm coming home. So I said to my girlfriend at the time, who's not my wife, I said, hey, what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> she says, nothing. I said, we're going to Ohio. <laughs> so went up and then I got the entire spiel in terms of what had gone wrong. And so just a classic flare-up. It had laid dormant for the most part for you know almost 20 years. And so the funny part, the mysterious part about that was there were some tests. And of course, my mom was, was older then as of now, she was older. So the treatment was a little bit different. And, you know, to, you know, the medicines and they were trying to find the right dosage and the right treatment plan and whatnot. And ultimately it went into remission. And as it went into remission, my sister was diagnosed with lupus. So we found out, well, we knew before, before that, that it's something that affects women in our family on my mother's side. And so my mother was diagnosed, I believe at 32. I want to say my sister was diagnosed at 32, I believe. And of course, my sister's strain wasn't as aggressive. It was just attacking her kidneys mm-hmm. because there's discoid lupus and there's other there's other forms of lupus where sun rays, you know, your skin is extremely sensitive to sunlight. And so they're just like, hey, don't they recommend use a ton of sunscreen or just try to stay away from the sun as much as possible. So not only that, I've had several other women on my mom's side of family be diagnosed, including two of my cousins that live here. One of my cousins just recently found. And so it's one of those things where it's a part of my family. And so, of course, with my mother and my sister having it, I have a daughter. I'm thinking, and I would never speak that. I was like, okay, I'm a carrier. The common denominator is me. I'm a carrier. So who knows? And now what happens with lupus now, they're showing now that it's, it's showing up earlier in some young women. But there are some men who have lupus as well. So it's never a doubt in my mind that, hey, I could very easily develop lupus at some point. I mean, my mother has, I have no idea. So something's very near and dear to my heart. It literally motivates me to take care of my health. Yeah. It motivates me to enjoy life because you just never, ever, ever know, you know, when you're not going to feel well or oh, wow. when, when your time in this life is over. So my mother used to ask me when I was a kid, she says, She's like, are you just happy to be alive? I'm like, yeah, ma, of course. <laughs> and I think she used to ask the question because she already knew the answer. But I think she asked the question because she 
knew the answer to her own life because she knew they gave her six months to live. So this is a long six months, brother. <laughs> so I was like, look, if six months wow. last this long, give me six more. So wow. she's still in the land of the living, man. So I'm, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for how lupus has changed our lives in terms of really just allowed us to be a family mm. um, and to be closer to one another and remind each other how much we love each other and appreciate each other and, and be in a place where we know this thing exists. And so my mom, you know, being of sound mind and body, people don't realize I get my competitive spirit from my mother. Oh, wow. She was the one that actually introduced me to basketball. Wow. When I was a kid, she introduced me to basketball and just not being able to get the ball even to touch the freaking backboard, man. <laughs> I was like, look, this is, I mean, let me let it hit the net or something. Let me do something. But she was always my cheerleader. She was my first rebounder. Uh-huh. And so most people don't realize, I was like, she would go and get the ball every time I missed. Come on, man. You got it. Come on. Keep trying. So she was literally one. She is the person. And not, not just like my dad, but she's the person that, that really fueled the competitive drive in me. No doubt. I love it. I love it. Thank you again for, you know, sharing that story and just reminding people going through their personal struggles, their go throughs that one value life, uh, be grateful, be grateful for every moment, every up, every speed bump, every higher up, no valleys come, but also know that we do have those mountaintop experiences and um, just value what we have and don't waste the moments. And I love that you just took us through that story and, and showcased that. Yes with the right mindset, with the right heart for life and enough love around you that you can pull through some tough situations. So, you know, just thank you for going deep and sharing that. As we close, I'd love to know, what are you reading? What are some of your goals? Where can we find you online? And maybe a coach Ricism to take us out. Wow. You know, thanks again, Bars. That's always phenomenal when you and I get together. What am I reading? Oh my God, what am I not reading? Um, I just read... The Work by Westmore. Mm. I'm a huge fan. If, please, if you all are not reading Seth Godin, please go read it. The first Seth Godin book that, that hooked me was The Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable? I also read, actually, I'm, I'm glad you said this because I got to pick these books up from the library later on today, The Purple Cow. Mm-hmm. And there's also a book, I've got, forgive me if I'm not saying this name of the book right. I think it has something to do with the little things that have the little ideas that have made a big difference in life or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. it's, trust me, it, it's, all of his books are highly, they come highly recommended. He's a phenomenal thinker, writer, strategist. I, I love his work. On Instagram, it is at CoachRice11. On Twitter, it's at CoachRice11. On Facebook, it is Facebook slash CoachRice11. Got it, got it. Was 11 your number? Yes, sir. Okay, got it, got it. I always wondered that. You know, I never asked. I was like, maybe that was his number. Matter of fact, up until a few years ago, I had the first jersey I ever wore. Oh, wow. You know what? I'm sure my parents are, are pack rats, so I'm sure she has it somewhere. <laughs> but 11 is, you know, I, I grew up watching Isaiah Thomas. And so mm-hmm. I always said when I started playing, I, that's 11 is my number. And so for me, it, it's kind of symbolic too, because it's like in most, basketball games you get one possession one shot there one it is. life one death you know you get one life one death you there know it is. people are like you know you only live once i said well hopefully you only die once <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it's funny. I was, I was doing it. I did it. I was a guest on a, a show yesterday and he said, hit me with a coach rice system. I said, wow. I said, okay. And the one that immediately came to mind was most people think that friendship and relationships are give and take. I said, no, friendship is give and grow. It's not give and go. It's give and grow. Cause there's a play in basketball. It's called a give and go. I say friendship or relationships is give and grow. The more you give, the more you grow, the more you grow, the more, you know, Ah, there it is, man. <laughs> love it, coach. Now I'm going to go scroll through your Instagram and that's coach price 11 on IG. And I'm going to look for that one. <laughs> I just want you to know. I'm looking I, for it. I want to say the give and grow one was, oh gosh, probably somewhere around 2014, 2013. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was when I said, yo, I said, this is a give and grow the more I really embraced being a servant. I was like, wow. When I hear students or former players come back and say stuff, it's allowed me to grow because, you know, they say, well, man, thanks for just listening. Sometimes thank you for listening or thank you for that advice. I'm like, wow, do you realize it, it helps me to grow? If I helped you grow, that was by my gift of listening oh, wow. or counseling. I said, but by you giving me the feedback, I allow myself to grow. I pay attention to how can I be a better listener? How can I be a better servant? And if listening is one of the best gifts that I have, let me grow that gift. So powerful. Wow. 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 Again, we had the pleasure of talking with coach rice, follow him on IG, let him know that I sent you at coach rice 11, head over to his YouTube channel. He has some phenomenal talks that will just challenge you, not just from you know, he, he has a great sense of humor, so you'll definitely laugh. But he also implants perspective. And as you heard, as he shared on diversity, as he shared on coaching, mentoring, that his perspective is grounded in the reality of his life. Not all mountaintops, not all valleys, just life with the full richness of each moment being savored, each moment bringing its challenges of leadership, its challenges that grow you. And as he just uh, let us know with that coach racism, we want to give and grow. We don't want to stagnate. We don't want to betray relationships by giving and going, running away, but being there, being steady throughout. Uh, Coach Rice, thank you for being a phenomenal man of character, someone that I value in my life. I get to talk to you almost every single day, which I enjoy. So I know that, you know, as you share with this audience that you'll have some new friends because I know they'll be reaching out and I, I think they'll pick your brain on just the consistency of your character, the consistency of your message, but more importantly, your love of life. So just thank you for sharing that with us as well. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you so much and continue success with everything you're doing and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, coach. Enjoy your Saturday as well. Hey, you too. Take care. All right, take care.